Welcome back to another episode of the Fit Professional One podcast. I'm just super excited today to have with me Brian Yolitz and Scott Legwald. We're going to talk about leadership. Leadership is a subject that seems kind of endless, but what we want to do is just explore what we know about it, what we've experienced, and we're hoping that you, the listener, will get some great takeaways that you can use to improve what you're doing out there in the real world. So with that, I'd like to introduce these two guys. Scott, why don't you go first and just give us your background and let us know about you and welcome. First, wait, thank you both for your service. These guys are both veterans and I absolutely appreciate the time, treasure and talent they put into the military. Thank you guys for serving. Thank you. Thank you. So Scott, tell us about you and your background. All right, thank you very much, Paul. I was born in Colorado. And my family brought me to Wisconsin in 1961, just a few months after I was born. The first three years of my life, I was raised in Wittenberg, Wisconsin. Then in 1964, came down to Eau Claire. And that's where I had the formative years of my life. And I will always deeply remember the years between age three and 18, in that I met a number of tremendous people, including you and Brian. As I went on through school and to school, I was raised by Christian parents in a Lutheran church in Eau Claire, and that was very formative and very helpful as far as being raised in a Christian church and using the elements of the Bible that are so helpful to us in life as we go forward. I went to Sunday school as I went through grade school. And as I started in grade school, I believe in the first or second grade, I started in Cub Scouts. And that was a very helpful and formative program to be in. And I stayed in Cub Scouts for approximately four years and then went on into the Boy Scout program and stayed in that until the ninth grade when I then shifted to being on teams, including a rifle team from the Westgate Sportsman's Club, as well as when I entered the 10th grade in Memorial High School, I joined the swimming team. And I learned a lot from the coaches about leadership and mentorship from both of those teams. They really helped develop me and prepare me for when I left high school and moved on into college. The first two years of college, I went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and I was in the Air Force ROTC program there. And then when I decided to switch majors and switch universities, I came back to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Uh, there was not an ROTC program there at the time. There is one there now. So I joined the Army Reserve Component Program of the Army National Guard in 1981, and I began as an enlisted man and made it to the rank of sergeant. And one year later, I went off to the Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning and then went on through the ranks for the next 31 years in various ranks of the Army. And I served in a variety of positions and branches. The military has requirements for civilian education as well as their own military education. So I went through two equivalent programs in the military for a master's degree, while they also required me to go through two master's degrees, one to get eligible for promotion to the rank of colonel. It wasn't an absolute requirement, but it was a highly recommended requirement. And then if you wanted to go beyond the rank of full colonel, 
colonel, you had to go to the U.S. Army War College or one of the other war colleges. So I went through that. So I had the privilege of going through a lot of civilian and military education throughout my career. And those are very helpful, informative, and I assume we'll talk more about them as we go on. But those helped develop me for each rank that I held, each position that I held. And I served in a number of different branches in the Army. And in my final nine years in the military, I became a joint qualified officer. That meant to work with the other services. And I went to a formal school called the Joint Professional Military Education Program. And that was held at a naval facility in Virginia at the Norfolk Navy Station. And I became a joint qualified officer and I went through a number of programs. And I also had the requirement in my final years in the service of working with civilian agencies for law enforcement and emergency response. And those also were very positive programs to be a part of. We supported emergency response and national security programs, not only in our state, but throughout the country. And we also would respond to emergencies in other states, including that very significant natural disaster in the area in New Orleans, I believe, called Hurricane Katrina response. We also did fire, flood, tornado, and ice storm response in other states. When I was retired from the military in 2013, I was selected for a position as an assistant deputy secretary for the Department of Corrections under Governor Walker. I was the number three appointee in the Department of Corrections and served the political appointment for two years. And my career and training in the military and all those formative training periods were very helpful for me to support the Department of Corrections in the two-year political appointment that I had. After I was dismissed from my political appointment, I decided that I would like to work five more years and I worked for a defense contractor, the third largest defense contractor in our country, Northrop Grumman. And I served in Saudi Arabia, training their military, specifically the Saudi Arabian National Guard, which is a full-time force. And I served there for five years. And when those five years were complete, I came back to the United States and began volunteering work. And I volunteer for our church as a member now of the church session, which is also known as a church council. And I'm a member and the senior leader of the volunteer group of the Department of Defense's employer support of the Guard and Reserve program. We support all the reserve component members within the state of Wisconsin. And we also work with the employer support of the Guard and Reserve committees throughout the country to support their reserve component members. When I served for Northrop Grumman, I had the privilege of working with approximately 1,000 U.S. veterans overseas, and we had 1,000 Saudi Arabian employees with us. And so that was very positive to work with all those veterans who had the same training and education that I had had. And now that I work with our volunteer program for ESGR of our approximately 72 volunteers, they're all wonderful volunteers to work with, but roughly 80% are veterans. And that really helps us as we support the reserve component members in our state as they work with their employers to have the most positive relationship. So, Paul, that's a brief background on myself, and I'm happy to answer any questions, but thank you for that time to introduce myself. Excellent. What rank did you get to, or just how's that work, and where was that relevant for you? I, was, I made it to the general officer rank of Brigadier General. I was submitted for the rank of Major General, which is two-star general, and I was confirmed for that rank by the U.S. Senate in May of 2013. But after I was confirmed for that rank, there wasn't a vacant position. So I was retired at one-star rank, but I had the privilege of serving as a one-star general for just a few months short of five years. 
Excellent. It'll be really interesting for you to contribute to this leadership discussion based on that rank for sure. And I know, Brian, let's go to you. You received a very high rank as well. Sure. Well, thanks, Paul. It's good to be with you and Scott this afternoon. And I enjoyed listening to Ben and Killy and hear their stories about their service in, in the Marine Corps. So that was a real treat and look forward to our conversation today. Just a bit of background. I was born in Wisconsin, Watertown, Wisconsin, then moved pretty quickly to White Bear Lake, Minnesota, picked up ice fishing and hockey here in Minnesota, and then moved to Eau Claire in the eighth grade and then graduated high school there. Spent a lot of time hunting and fishing and then played varsity hockey at Eau Claire Memorial. And it was some of the very first years of the high school hockey program, not as sophisticated and as polished as they are today, but certainly a lot of good times, as, as Scott mentioned, being part of a team and that kind of stuff. But then I went to the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, where I got my civil engineering degree. And while I was there, I played rugby and was part, participated in a couple of other programs on campus. Met my wife, my now wife, Annie, on campus there, and then had a pretty significant life-changing event. In April of 1982, my father passed away, and it was kind of this, you know, pretty traumatic event. And I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I help my mom? How do I help my family? You know, at the time, the job market was pretty slacking, and I had a, you know, a lot of knocks on the door by a Tech Sergeant Ed Ralston from the United States Air Force. And so, after some conversation with Annie, we said, let's go give this thing a roll. We can do anything for four years. So we signed up for the Air Force and remember him very well. A lot of st good stories I could tell about him, but we'll move on. So then I enlisted in the United States Air Force in May of 1983. And then in January of 84, just after I graduated, I went to officer's training school in San Antonio, Texas, and began marching there upon graduation. Then went to Holloman Air Force Base and started my career as an officer, as a second lieutenant. Bunch of different assignments at both the unit, you know, base and squadron level, to headquarters, including both uh, two tours in the Pentagon, one in the Joint Staff, one at the on the Air Staff, and I served as the aide-de-camp to the Air Force Chief of Stamp Staff for about two and a half years, and served in a squadron, two squadron command positions, a group commander at the first mission support group at Langley Air Force Base, where I helped bed down the F-22, and then my final assignment was as director for installations at U.S. Air Force's Central Command with responsibility for air bases throughout the Central Command area of operations. So that included Afghanistan and Iraq and all the Middle East countries, Qatar, Kuwait, Jordan, Oman, and on and on, Kyrgyzstan. So had responsibilities for the bases there that we were operating from, the air bases we were operating from, as well as contracting actions that happened on those bases, fire protection, and explosive ordnance disposal teams in the AOR, as well as area of operations in the region, and then as well as emergency management and fire protection. So a pretty significant portfolio. And then in 2010, I retired from the Air Force and hung up my uniform. And then I came here to Minnesota, where I now serve as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Facilities for the Minnesota State College University System. So I'm responsible for overseeing the facilities, procurement and operations and investment for the 54 campuses of the public college university system, everything but the University of Minnesota. And also within that portfolio is the emergency management, environmental safety and compliance, as well as, like I said, the emergency management and then the campus safety. So a lot of a lot of important stuff to be working on. It's a good transition from the, what my role was in the Air Force to the public higher education sector. Our mission is focused from shifting from the day-to-day -day 
airfield operations to classrooms and labs and that kind of stuff. But it's, a, it's been a good transition. So that's kind of a nutshell background on me. Look forward uh, to yeah, our uh, continued conversation. You guys are really modest. What was your rank? What, where did you end up when you left the, the Air Force, Brian? I retired as a, as a colonel. Okay. Uh, yeah. So another just super impressive resume. And I'm so thrilled to have you guys here. And I hope our listeners to that introduction are as excited as I am to hear about your views on leadership and your experience. And what really brought the FitPro One podcast to this was the fellowship podcast with two Marines, Ben Stofflett and Keely Kitzman. I think one was a corporal and one was a private. I'm not exactly sure, but great guys. And they talked about this fire squad leadership in the Marines and approach for units of four guys guys and the way they prepare, the way they all go through a role they refer to as the squad leader, and the way when they finish their practice, deliberate practice, and I forget what exactly they call that, and then they rotate through. And so they make a change, everybody rotates through, and then they debrief and they keep doing it. And this is all in preparation before the real mission. And I thought to myself, my goodness, if I could figure out how to pull that into the private sector, it just had so many positives. That's the background of why we're here today. With our background, we all went to high school together. I thought of you two guys, and I said, we just got to get a different perspective. And the rest of the story, if you will, because those guys did a great job, as Brian pointed out. And again, another thank you to those two young men and their contribution to the podcast and also their service. It was just really fun to hear. So I'd like to expand on this today. And it's a, such a broad subject. It's difficult to really dive into. What if we try this? If each of you take a turn at trying to describe the phenomenon of leadership as you experienced it, the way you trained for it, and then the way it was instilled and executed upon. That's the best I can kind of do. We don't have to like go in order. We can jump in and add. So either one of you, who, which one of you would like to start to just, maybe we start with how you were trained for it, whatever you'd like, whatever with the background I gave you for the podcast today, what can you kick off the discussion with? So how about how, how were you trained? How were you trained to be a leader in your positions that you held? I think I'll go ahead and start and then, you know, we can go back and forth, but I think it started in very early on in the commissioning process. You know, at officer's training school, you were given opportunities to, first of all, get your stuff together and be a good follower, follow the rules. And then you were rotated through different opportunities to lead, whether it was simply marching to the chow hall. You're not supposed to say chow hall anymore, but, you know, the, to the dining facility and then lead different functions, whether it's a sports activity that kind of stuff. So it started very early on and it really focused around having some technical skills and capabilities, but then also being able to influence others around you. And I think that's kind of at the core of the definition of leadership. It's about the ability to influence those around you. And then that just built on throughout the career as you expanded your responsibilities, you were given a professional military education opportunity, just like Scott described, whether it was in the Air Force, it was after training school, then it was Air Command and Staff College, and then you could do to go a senior service school, Air War College, similar to what Scott described. I went to the uh, Industrial College of the Armed Forces, where I got a master's in national resource strategy and served, you know, went to school with folks from across all of our services, including some of the federal departments sent 
their emerging leaders to that as well, and as well as international officers. So that was a great opportunity to learn about a host of things that maybe you wouldn't be exposed to day to day. But as you went up in your career, you were given different opportunities to engage at certain levels. And then kind of backing down again, one of the things that we worked within the Air Force is that in our career path, you know, as Scott talked about being in different branches in the Air Force, we had different career fields. Within the civil engineer career field, which I was part of, our job was really twofold. One was to run the day-to-day -day operations of the base we were assigned to, if we were at a unit level, but then also prepare for combat or emergency response. So there's almost two different animals. And both of those provided opportunities to develop leadership skills, whether it's the technical capability or just the way to influence job development and execution, or when we went to the field or deployed, you know, switching on that activity to be in a deployed environment, whether it's here in the States to a natural disaster or overseas to some training exercise or to some contingency operation. So it was an ongoing process. And I don't think it was as regiment, regimented or as prescribed as what I've heard in the Marine Corps, where they're really mission focused and day in, day out. You hear a lot about the Navy SEALs, just training and training and debriefing and just being incredibly rigorous in their debriefs with each other. We didn't have, I don't think, that formal of a process, but I think it was a process that was ineffective for the mission needs of the Air Force. Scott, what did you see and hear experience in your time? Well, I began leadership training at the enlisted level when I went through basic training. They appointed a number of us to be leaders of our platoons that were being trained in basic training. And we had to work to lead our fellow trainees, our fellow soldiers, throughout the two months of basic training and then on through the next two months of our first program where we were trained for a specific military occupational specialty, a specific course of training. So we had to learn how to work with our fellow soldiers and do some very basic tasks, but also that progressed on to making sure that we had accountability of people, their equipment, their safety, and also their supplies, what they had. And so that was my first experience in that four-month program. And I went through that at Fort Bliss, Texas at the Air Defense Artillery School. Then the next deeply involved period of training I had was at the Officer Candidate School, such as you described, wherein we were learning all the elements of becoming a newly commissioned officer in our military, a second lieutenant in the Army. And that program was a little over three months long. And we were learning and being trained to lead up to 30 other individuals at a time and then working within that element, again, for accountability, supplies that were needed, safety and security, completing our missions that we were assigned, as well as going through various educational elements. One thing that was very formative after that being commissioned as a second lieutenant is I went back to four months of education and training at Fort Benning, which is called the Officer Basic Course, to train us on leading a 30-man element. And we were trained in the particular program I went through, training 30 individuals for combat, for fighting, and how to supply them, support them, evacuate them when they were wounded, and then work under another commander who was leading three platoons at a time. But we were also trained to step up in case we had to lead our entire company size element, which was approximately 120 people. Then the next element of training I went through was called the Officer Advanced Course, 
where we were trained to lead between 120 and 240 people. And we went through a program called the Officer Advanced Course. I went through that at Fort Knox. And then the next program was to become a staff officer at the major lieutenant colonel level and also become trained to command at what was known and is known at the battalion level, where you're leading between 350 and 800 people at a time, and also becoming educated and trained in leadership, wherein if you were given a brigade command or a group command, that could have anywhere between 900 and 3,500 people. And then when you completed the war college program, you were eligible to become a general officer and potentially lead the largest of brigades or going into assistant division command or division command. And our divisions have 14,000 to 18,000 people, depending on their size and structure. So as you went on in your career and the civilian and military education matched this, you were trained to lead progressively larger groups of people and progressively larger missions, but still focused on the mission and accomplishing it and making sure that the troops you were leading, the men and women you were leading were supplied and you were doing your very best to take care of them. And if you were in combat, and I served a year in Afghanistan, so I understood what it meant to supply and support people in a war zone, that you were doing your very best to ensure that your people were taken care of. And if they were wounded, that you got them evacuated as quickly as possible and did as, your very best effort to save their lives and to do the right thing if people were killed in action and make sure their bodies were recovered and brought back to the United States. So I would say as you went up the progressive chain in your career, you're progressively trained to lead more people at larger bodies and groups of people, but accomplish larger and larger missions, and then also work with other services and other branches of your military as you went up the chain, up the progressive line, and also work with other nations. When I worked in Afghanistan, our command headquarters was called the Coalition Forces Command, and we worked with 37 other nations that were supporting the Afghanistan. Afghan government at that time. So you worked with other nations as well as the five armed services of our nation. So that would be what I would add to what Brian said. And Brian did a very accurate job in what he described, Paul. Excellent. That was a fabulous background, I think, for some questions. Where I'd like to start is one thing Brian said, and I think Scott alluded to too, is be a good follower. So I'd, I'd like to key on the role differential of a team member versus the lead role. And you guys have been through so many different positions and ranks that we don't have to go through every one, but for those out there in the civilian sector, what tips might you have in that differentiating role, the role of the follower and the role of the leader? And I'd like to key in on the role of the team member or the follower first. Well, I would offer that the follower must have honor, ethic, and integrity and follow the directions and guidance of their leader. Now, in the military, we only had the authority to not follow orders if they were violating rules and policy and violating regulations. And there were at times challenging orders to follow. And of course, in a combat zone, you're following orders that almost inevitably will cause some people to become wounded or even killed. But you have to have within you the integrity, honor, and ethic to follow the orders and direction you're given and also encourage your peers, the people that are following with you, that you all work together as a team. And it's very synonymous to look at a sporting team like a football team or a baseball team, where you all work together to accomplish what your goal is to complete what your team is doing that day. 
and you all work together and you all show mutual honor, respect, and integrity as a follower to the direction you're being given. And that's loaded. I have like a thousand questions. I love it. And so number one, jumping ahead a little bit, and it's a different question, but it is mission before alignment or is alignment a result of mission if I am in a role on a team based on what you just said? Because that subtle difference, see, civilians don't have the, the benefit of the hierarchy and the command, right? In civilian life, I loved what you said, honor ethics, et cetera, to follow an order. Absolutely, you said that people are aligned or you want them to be aligned in the military. In the civilian world, it's not always that way. There's, I refer to it as drift. And so a specific question is, well, I've asked a couple here. Let's get back to a specific question. Is mission before alignment or is alignment a result of a mission? Because it came to mind because of your analogy with a sports team. I should let Brian comment here first, and then I can. Well, I think mission is what, what you align thing toward, lines, align things towards. And then there's this debate around, you know, there's these sayings to different organizations like, you know, mission first, people always. I mean, you can't accomplish the mission without the people. So getting your team aligned with and focused on the mission and understanding what that is. And then within, of all the things you can be doing to accomplish the mission, what are the most important things? So how do you prioritize what are those, I know, you know, from your industrial engineering background, Paul, you know, what's the critical path? What is that linchpin that's going to make us and how do you achieve excellence in that regard? And then be able to say, hey, this other stuff, you know, if I don't have the resources to do everything, this other stuff can kind of fall off. But I think if I could circle back about the followership stuff, you know, yes, Scott's framework is awesome. I just add a couple things is as a good follower, I think if you were going to be mentoring somebody just in, no matter where you are is know your job, you know, you know your job inside and out and be excellent in that. And, you know, that's kind of in your little space. What's that? You know, make your bed and move forward from there. What do you have control over day in and day out? And then as you get to know that, be aware of what's going around you so you can anticipate. You know, my brother and I kind of joke about writing a book about, you know, everything I learned about leadership or the world is I learned at McDonald's. You know, I was working as a fry guy. You know, sitting there going like, okay, I made fries, but is the line really busy? Do I need to make some more? Do I need to think ahead? Do I need to go get some more and bring it out here? All So back to just day-to-day, once you're excellence in your job, think ahead of what's going to be needed next. And then when you've got some extra time, you know, help others, help others be successful and learn what they're doing. And then this is something I've been really focusing on. I picked it up late in the Air Force, and now I'm trying to pass that along to, to folks here, is about thinking up and saying, okay, I know what I got to do and I'm looking at my boss and I don't care who he or she is. What can I do to help them be more effective? And how can I, do I get some something early? Do I give them a draft of something? Can I give them a proposal? How can I anticipate and help think about what's on their mind or on their plate and how can I help lighten that? So really, I think there's a lot of stuff and this applies no matter where you are, I would argue, whether yeah. you're a private or the airman or you're brand new to some corporate environment. And it's mission-based, right? It's with the understanding that the person in the role understands the cause and effect chain to whatever yeah. the mission is, right? Yeah, and having that alignment. Yeah, that's was, we worked really hard on that and saying, well, some people, you know, for example, within our career field, you got a guy or gal who's a power production specialist. And so they're working on generators. And you know, it's kind of hard sometimes to tie them directly to an F-16 or an F-22 taking off and landing safely. But describing that, hey, if I've got the back of power and something else that they worked on was the barriers that 
provided the cable, kind of like an aircraft carrier, that should they get in trouble, that those are operating efficiently and safely and are 100% reliable. I mean, that's a big deal. And that's how you can tie yourself to the mission. That alignment is really important. You know, it's interesting. Both of you guys brought up sequence as you learned leadership. And it sounds like as you train it, is you start small. I heard that. Did I hear that right? You start small and tell us about that. Or when you start small, how does the authority come? I mean, the attributes of leadership, like allocation of resources, making decisions. Is there true, when you start small in the military, do you really get full authority in that space? Is that how it works? I guess I would begin an answer that yes, you do have full authority. At least in my career, I saw that when you begin as a sergeant, you have authority over the men that you're leading. And that normally started as a team or a squad. And you were responsible to ensure that they were supplied with the equipment, the munitions, the medical equipment they needed, and that they were given the proper instructions and orders for that particular day or mission. And then as Scott, you I was starting even smaller than that, Scott. I think Brian had an example of, it didn't sound like a command. It sounded like a project. Yeah. Did I get that right? That as opposed to leading people, I have a project that will involve other people, but it's project-based instead of command-based. Did I hear that well, even right? Projects, even projects that we would have, you would have to take the direction or orders you were given to accomplish the projects. And I saw that frequently done with engineering projects. And I also saw it done, you could say, with training. If you would look at a training mission as a project to train, if you would look at project and mission as somewhat synonymous, although not identical, you could make the argument that you work together, you follow the direction you're given. One important word I'd like to add at this point is that a good leader empowers those under him empowers the followers to complete the mission to the best of their ability and a good leader empowers subordinate leaders to the maximum ability that they can trust them and authorize them so that they're empowered to make their decisions to have the best breadth and depth of leadership throughout your entire team no matter how small it is so the the order in the military this is a clarifying question for me is about the destination state or the end point and then based on what you just said there's a ton of latitude in how to deliver the destination state so that's empowering because the order is specific right the order is a specific outcome but by giving the order and with the training and background, then the group of people with a leader is empowered to figure it out, come up with the how, but get to the order state. Is that clear? I think that's very true. And I could give you one quick example and then ask Brian, but if we would look at the order General Eisenhower was given in the winter of 1943 about the landing of Allied forces in France and the liberation of France and then progressing on for combat against Germany and ultimately the winning of the Second World War in the European theater, he was given a very broad direction, a very broad order. It was the invasion of Europe and the successful accomplishment of landing of the forces and progressing inland. And all of the work he did with all of the troops, airmen, naval forces, and of course we had an Army Air Corps element at the time, but he worked with the Canadians, the British, and the French. And that day we landed no less than 80,000 people. And it was the largest single operation done in World War II 
but General Eisenhower was working with extensive numbers of other generals and admirals and subordinate leaders, all the way down to the sergeant level. And those men and women, and there were some female medics that were ultimately landed, but all those people had to be empowered to do their specific mission that day and bring the culmination, the success of that order of landing forces in Europe, successful landing on the beaches and defeating the Germans and going inland. And so again, he was given a broad order by Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but Eisenhower did that. And again, he did it through his leadership and also his empowerment. And also a good leader has to be a good listener. I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but the best leaders in our history have been the best listeners taking in the feedback and the input that those they're working with and their subordinates are giving them on a mission or a task so that they accomplish it correctly. And I would offer this, that when I was in the final years of my training, when I became a general officer and the chief of staff of the army, the four-star generals instructing and training us, I was in a class of roughly 90 colonels and brigadier generals, and he began his lesson to us of training and mentorship and leadership at that level. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to offer this, that the most persuasive and effective leader in our military is the best listener. Brian, what do you have to add on empowerment, listening, and everything we just heard? Those are two great topics, and I, yeah. and I agree a thousand percent about the listening thing. So, but I'm going to... Just build upon Scott's comment around empowerment and really my perspective around leadership is really around creating an environment. You know, we talk about orders and it's often, I sometimes want to caution people that in the military, we don't run around barking and saying, hey, go do this, go do that, go to that. Our orders are really around setting the desired outcome or the expectations of what we want to have at the end. It's not around telling everybody how to make things happen, how to specifically do them. What do we want generally to have happen? And then within the confines, as you know, Scott described the rules of engagement or statutes or policy or procedure, but then how do we set the conditions or the environment for people to be successful in doing that, to do their part, to do the part that we've trained them to do, that we've asked them to be technically excellent in. And that's what I think is important is that we are, the leadership is the empowerment includes creating the environment that people have the right training, the right resources, the right tools, the right amount of time, the right amount of rest so that they can get the job done. And then that, in, that process involves listening. And we can go to a whole bunch of, there's a lot of great stories about how much you can learn from keeping your mouth shut and get a sense of how your organization's doing as opposed to just barking stuff. Those are just excellent comments, and I agree 100%. And I use the term destination states for the outcome. And then letting those, just like you guys said, I, there's a ton of overlap, I think, to the civilian based on what you just said for professionals out there. And you guys are out in the world now, too, where I heard a bunch. Number one is, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? And so there's a good communication of that. And it comes down in the military, sometimes as an order or a mission to be done, you use your resources. And one thing I heard is you can really count on the training, the technical competence of the players, if you will, that you're going to put on that particular mission. So that's interesting is that there is a confidence in no letdown. I think it might be true in some organizations that are non-military where you have some weak links and we have this thing called margin where we only can fund so much training. So it becomes a prioritization of the tools we think we're going to run into the most, but then said mission comes up and we talk about the destination state 
and we got to bring in the players that we have with potentially some knowledge, skill, or discipline gaps that don't optimize it. I've always been jealous of the military because you have a budget. It's like being able to guarantee revenue, right? Uh, it's well, that kind of thing. So I guess what, as I heard you guys, that sounds spectacular. And I want to mimic that to the extent I can, but I often run into the constraint of a limited budget, especially when it comes with training, because training takes margin, right? Training will create a product and a service later, but training right now today, when I don't have a, extra people bench strength, if you will, doesn't actually get a product out the door that I can invoice. Yeah. And there's a lot of small companies out there that are in that state of being. So this is a great place for you guys to like take my comments. And what have you done in your private sector jobs to overcome that? And what would you like to embellish on that comment? First of all, the military's got a budget too. It's, I know. it's not it's not just flush, you know, because I mean I if you would ask if I would ask my pilot friends, do you want to fly again today? They'd say, yeah. hell yeah. You know, any sortie I can get, which is, you know, a, a, a training gas. mission. Yeah, they'd love to fly every day. They'd be able to work on basic flying maneuvers, all that stuff. And Excellent. same with a ground yeah. commander would say, hey, I want to take another you know, field training exercise or FTX. I want to be out with my troops and make another run at this. To be able to do those, that, you know, that red teaming or that you know, debrief that Don and Killy talked about, but it, it doesn't exist. So financially and time-wise, the military is constrained as well. But that's where you got to prioritize and say, okay, let, how can I make the time that I have, the money that I have, be most impactful on the mission, on this destination state that you've described. And I think that's what commanders that listen and understand can help bring that to bear to make sure that they understand where they may have gaps in their organization and how they can bring the, the right training, the right intensity to that to get where they need to go. And then just from my perspective here is we're working really hard on doing some mindful cross-training of people so that they have some sense of what another person does. My role here, everybody's one deep and that's, you know, when somebody gets sick, gets hurt, you know, particularly during COVID, we had a lot of issues. There's got to be some cross-training. Now, are they going to be a 100% capable individual? Probably not. But can they at least log on to the system and they maybe clear a couple of the basic issues or bring to closure a couple of transactions? We would hope so. And that's what we're trying to build. But it's an ongoing effort because you've got some people advance, they retire, they move on, professionally develop onto another opportunity. And that's an opportunity for everybody to move up and fill the gaps. But then there's also gaps in other places that you got to fill and, and adjust for. So, so anyway, Scott, how about you? Well, I hardly agree that, yes, we had a fixed budget for training and we would try and plan out in advance how we'd use that budget throughout a year because we worked off of, as you recall, fiscal years, and we knew what our training budget would normally be at the beginning of the year and tried to plan out our resources through the year and what type of training we would do. And when I was overseas in Afghanistan, even when we weren't fully engaged in missions against the five forces that we were against there, and the Taliban was the largest one, we would have training for people when we could have training and fit it in. And we were also working to train the Afghan military. A good portion of our troops there in the capital region were dedicated to training the Afghan military and the Afghan police. So we used our limited budget. And when we had extra time that we could apply to our own staffs, we'd have some limited training. And as you noted, this is a great point you brought up. Cross-training is really helpful to keeping your organization flowing. If someone loses a skill or you lose someone due to a sickness or being wounded or they're lost to you completely, 
and you try and teach them the basic skills to keep going on your mission area. And I also learned this too in when I worked for that defense contractor for five years, that when we had periods of downtime, when we weren't training or doing maintenance or medical support for the Saudi Arabian military, we would train our own people and we would use our own classrooms to help train our team. And we would use the leaders we had in management and leadership and team leading. And we also, with our limited budget, would hire some personnel to come and enhance our maintenance training and our medical training. We brought contractors in from Europe and the United States. And we also brought in some contractors to enhance our management's quality training. And I went through a quality course there for nine weeks while I was serving there. So I think you brought up a great point that use your limited budget and enhance your training when you can with the time you have. I think that's a takeaway I want to make sure the listeners have pulled out right now is my pissing and moaning about no redundancy is as close to not acceptable as possible. In other words, make it a priority. So that's a really good point and it makes really good sense. So when we make margin, we need to route some back toward training, redundancy, cross-training, backup, all of that. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting and I want to make sure that the listener understands is Scott just talked about taking some of the training budget and it's essentially in my world, other provider, and we're all in the private sector now, but you said other contractors, other countries even, that's really interesting. In my world, it can be my vendor, my subcontractor, my supplier. And there's a there's a book out there I want the listener to know. It's by Jeff Toole called Mastering the Complex Sale where he outlines what Shell Oil did with exactly that. And Scott, I, someday we can talk about that. I think I'd like to know if that's in line with what you experienced, but those are some takeaways I wanted to insert right there. And it's fabulous. And we can come back, but with limited time, another thing you both brought up besides the listening, great leaders are the best listeners or great listeners minimally is influencing your team. So can we expand on that a little bit? And do you have any tips for people like me who have no military background? What can we take besides that listening avenue or could you add for us that would help us in a very positive way influence our team members to accomplish our missions? I'll begin with the thought that I was trained on early, and that's being present with your team. Don't transmit instructions on paper or telephone or computer. And while your team is doing their mission, make sure you're with them. And if your team is out training, make sure you're out there with them while they're training or participate in the training with them. There is no substitute for being a leader who's present while the mission is going on or during training. And another important thing to do as a leader is be with your team at the end of a mission. And we had a term for this called an after action review or a lessons learned forum, where you talk to your team and you ask them about what you felt went positively and what you feel needs to be improved upon. And I'll give you one quick historic example. When General Patton took over command of U.S. forces in North Africa during World War II in 1942, he replaced a general who wasn't present with his forces at the front lines. And General Patton led the way for the next two and a half years in his career. And yes, he made a few mistakes at times, but he always led for the front. And another great example was during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln always visited his leaders at the front lines and he visited the troops in communities and cities where it was safe. So there's no substitute for leadership 
visiting and being present and leading from the front where possible. Super. And in fact, Ben and Keeley brought that up too, because we use the, like the Amazon CEO, should he go to the warehouse and throw boxes? And they said, no, he doesn't have to throw boxes with the guys throwing boxes or the gals. What he has to do is just go acknowledge they're in the muck doing a good job. And I think that aligns really well with what you said, Scott. What do you think about the practicality, those out there that are going to throw out excuses that there's some constraint that might keep them from doing that? I guess the advice is just figure out how to overcome it. Yes. When I worked for Northrop Grumman, my last position with them in the five years I was there was I was the manager of their entire Eastern region, roughly one third of the workforce. And I didn't let anything inhibit me to going out and visiting training, visiting the training we were doing for the Saudis, visiting our personnel. And if I had anyone in the hospital, I'd go visit them in the hospital. And I always had town hall type meetings once a month to take the input from our men who are working for us. So again, I think if people make excuses or try and say they can't do something, they're being an ineffective leader. They have to find a way to lead from the front, be present, because again, if you're not out there with the team, learning from the team and being present, you're missing a great deal. Your people who work for you, they're going to be saddened by your lack of presence. Excellent. Brian, you brought up figuring out how to influence people. Tell us, tell us more. I'm going to keep talking about presence and just, it's a different, a little bit of a different in terms of listening and as part of the communication process, you know. I mean, it goes in any relationship when you're having a conversation about about being present, meaning you are truly listening what the people are saying, their body language, the tone of voice, and not thinking about, well, what am I going to say next? Or what's the next meeting going to be? Or what's the next on my schedule? I mean, really being present and, and you know, asking open-ended questions. I used to like you know, going to the dining facility and just sitting down with some folks and saying, hey, Tell me about your day. What was the best part of the day? What sucked the most? And that kind of stuff and kind of opening the door and then just letting silence be, it's okay. You don't have to fill the silence and allow, allow the conversation to flow. I think that's really an important thing about being present. You know, Scott's point about being present, being there, but then also being when you're there, be there, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The thing I did when I was a commander in many of my assignments was what I called working with airmen, where I would go and I would sling boxes. You know, you talked to Bezos thing. I'd taken a contrary view on that. I learned so much when I would go spend a half a day or just a couple hours, depending on the schedule, but I would block that off my schedule and I would help go fuel airplanes or I would go work in the dining facility and we'd make, you know, just a ton of chicken breasts and just hanging out and talking learning about what's going on you know in the dining facility what's going on uh, in the eod shop and then what is going on with their families what's going on with the health care that they're getting and you know they're having trouble getting appointments when school's coming up can they get the immunizations that they want i mean all that stuff wears on your on your airmen or soldiers or marines or sailors or just staff you know so you get a sense of what's eaten at them that may be taking them taking their focus off of this destination state and how they can contribute to that so you can either at least understand and appreciate it or take action to take something off of their plate to allow them to be successful and that goes back to that empowerment that creating environment for them to be successful so being present asking open ended questions and and really listening and and encouraging people to talk it's a big deal i think 
Excellent. And I would agree with that 100%. And I would just add that whenever I would go out and listen, and I was taught and trained this way, when I'd go out to be present, I would listen. And when I was doing my last five years of work overseas, when I'd go out in the desert where we were training, and quite often we had live weapons training of many different types, and some of it would character, some people would characterize it as dangerous. And the weather was quite tough. The hottest temperature I endured over there was 122 degrees. I always listened to what our people were saying. And if they needed something, if they needed assistance, and when I'd go out to a training area, if I'd empowered someone to perform a mission, I wasn't interfering. I was there to observe, learn, and assist. And that's what you should be trying to do is facilitate the accomplishment of the mission. You take away what you see is happening and those things you can influence for positivity on your team. That's what you should be doing. And I'll give you a great example. When I had to visit a range that was about 100 miles away from where our headquarters was in the east, we had a range that was 100 miles out into the desert. The quarters weren't correct or positive for our men. And I did everything I could to work with our corporate leadership and the Saudi Arabian military to enhance their quarters, to make sure they had enough fresh water, and that we also had the ability to get them to a hospital in a quicker amount of time if anyone was hurt. So again, when you're present, you should, as Brian said, you should listen and you should try and facilitate and influence things for positive outcomes. So the mission is accomplished safely and positively. That is so good. Thank you guys for doing that. I did a five-minute version of this podcast called Positive Drop-Ins, which is pretty much exactly what you're talking about. And so the listener who might have heard that, all of what these two guys just said should have been in that five minutes because it's it's really good. But I, one thing I, I recommend too, and, I, and when I'm talking to young professionals, I'd be curious if this happens with you guys right now or if it happened in the military, is everything you described in my positive, I, I encapsulate maybe incorrectly in what I call a positive drop-in, PDIs. And PDIs drive intrinsic motivation. So PDIs drive Intrinsic motivation increases, I say IMI, just to help my staff keep a little acronym in their head to actually execute on it. But the basic question is, how about up chain? Isn't it as important to go up chain as down chain? Please comment. I think a lot's going to depend on, on who your leader is and what's their leadership style. I think I mentioned earlier on about trying to understand how do you lead up? How do you help anticipate and how do you try to help take stuff off your plate you know, one of the things I, I think is when we communicate up, we need to be as concise as possible and don't beat around the bush. You know, there's a phrase called bottom line up front or bluff that, you know, you say, hey, boss, X happened or X needs to happen. And then you can tell the story of why. You know, I work in the higher ed sector, so it's kind of interesting sometimes. I think some of my colleagues would argue that the importance of an issue is based on the volume and length of the email. And so, no, that's not helpful to my boss. He or she's got finite time. So if I can distill stuff down to actionable, digestible bites that they can act on, that's an important thing that we can do to help them as part of the upward management stuff. And not, that, not exactly on what you're talking about, but certainly I think an effective tool. What's interesting is for me as an onlooker, so I don't know that this is true. It's a question. In combat, there's no time to waste. So when you have to have 
that kind of, would you say, lead up our conversation to the commander? Like we shouldn't go around that corner because it's too heavily armed or something. Doesn't it make sense when the stakes are very high and there's very short time to add procedure to those communications in some way? But like language, language is one thing, term, terminology, but also there might be procedure involved. And I'm kind of coming off my Apollo 13 look in what NASA does when they're trying to solve a catastrophic. And I'm just wondering if you guys experienced that all or if that's would make a difference. Brian said, depends on leadership style, but can you scale, if you will, efficiencies by creating procedure in that kind of a communication? Well, I would offer that when you have very short notice time frame things, we have to make short notice decisions. Those subordinates have been empowered to do the right thing in whatever they encounter, as long as they're working within the boundaries that you may have set for them. And quite often you'll be given a mission to accomplish something and perhaps you'll be given some boundaries, but optimally you'll be given some degree of latitude as to how to accomplish it. And when you're communicating with senior leaders, it's most important that yes, you are concise, but you inform them of what they need to know so that they're supporting your team, which is part of their team, and that you're giving them honest, ethical input. And another important thing that I was taught early on is that you need to give the leaders above you courses of action to consider. Yes. Give them COAs, courses of action, and you brief them and you can make a recommendation on courses of action. And I was taught never take a leader anything less than two courses of action, but optimally three and brief them on what you believe is the right course of action and then go from there. But when you're involved in a mission such as a combat mission, which isn't the absolute intensity of it every day in the military, but you're prepared for that. And yes, there is combat ongoing in Ukraine now and we're training and preparing for it, of course, but you do have empowerment to accomplish certain things in orders and again, you'll have boundaries and hopefully some latitude. And if you've given your people the proper amount of empowerment and latitude, and you've given them boundaries you want them to follow, we used to have boundaries on our tactical maps that we had to stay within unless we were pushed out of them by the enemy. If you stay within your boundaries and you accomplish the mission as you're directed and you utilize the empowerment and latitude you've been given, that's very effective. And again, you need to take, as you go up the chain to your senior leaders, positive information about how to solve a negative circumstance or one that they can simply improve upon. And for the listener, one thing that we do that would fall right into what Scott said, and you've motivated me to do a better job. I don't think we're doing a good enough job with this, but the boundary would be a certain capital expenditure to solve a problem. For instance, maybe that's $100,000 of capital. So let's say the three solutions they've come up with are more than that. We actually have a procedure then for them to go ahead and justify that and actually come in with a completed action plan. And that's what I was getting at with procedure. And so I think we have it partly right, but I think my organization has to do a better job in making sure that if it's 101,000, maybe we should be a little bit more rigorous with our rule. I'm not quite sure. I mean, that can break the back of the spirit of the team as well. But there's definitely boundary rules that you need procedure, I think. And that's that's an example, I think, of what you just said that we're trying to do. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. And uh, what I found interesting, you made a note of, is you said, bring two, three is better. That's outstanding. <laughs> 
that's just outstanding because with the recommendation, in your experience, Scott, did you mostly go with the recommendation when they brought three with the recommendation and essentially did the cases? And how often did you not just take the hard work that they had done? I'd say nine times out of 10, we would listen to the recommendation yeah. of our subordinates. That's what, yeah. And the only time that we might modify their recommendation is if we had information or we had some direction from other senior leaders or peer leaders that maybe we needed to modify something that we might do so. But I'd say the vast majority of the time, we'd listen to the recommendation of those empowered subordinates below us. Yeah. And I, I think that, in fact, is empowerment. There's a procedure that drives the personal self or the personal responsibility the self-reliance to the solution that supports the mission. So outstanding. We're, we're coming up on the, the end here. I wonder in the last roughly third here today, can you two comment on your experience in what the biggest gap, if you will, in knowledge, skills, and disciplines regarding leadership in your private sector experience was when you arrived back in the private sector? With all the good stuff you've been talking about, what have been the challenges or the biggest obstacles to overcome or skill gaps to train in the form of leadership at the organizations you entered? Let's see. I can go. You know, I went from my role, you know, spending a lot of time in the Middle East in combat operations when we were, when I arrived at Air Force and Central Command, we were in the process of working our way through the Battle of Basra and supporting that and the initial elections in Iraq. And then in Afghanistan, we were ramping up forces. We were bedding down a ton of folks. We were building bases. We were trying to help build the ring road. I mean, just there's a lot of stuff. A lot of decisions were being made very quickly. And uh, when I got here, higher ed as a culture has got is a collaborative culture or a lot of discussion. I mean, that's what they embrace is the discussion and the debate. And then, so I struggled a bit with the decision-making. I'd say, I think we've talked about this long enough. We need to decide and let's go. So that was the acknowledgement that we've talked enough and then making a decision to take action and go. And then say, once we've made a decision, let's keep going on unless there's something just crazy about the conditions that we made the decision under that they've changed dramatically. We don't have to reopen everything and have another discussion about the decision. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff involved in here around leadership, but that was kind of the one that I found interesting and just something that I worked through and I think we're in a pretty good place now, at least for me. Uh, on that one, Brian, so decision-making was, so accountability or authority then, was it a more blurry line or was there an actual process of collaboration to decide? I think my assessment was those that I would argue had the authority to make the decision wanted to allow discussions to continue way beyond where I think there was value added, not just personal opinion. But right. you know, we could talk all day long about the shade of eggshell or white or beige on the wall, but we've got to decide and get the wall painted. So we could talk all about the hues and the tones and the light, but we got to get the wall painted. So let's go. And everybody's had input and we've made a decision. Let's go. And that's one in, thing I know. In go your ahead. realm, then, did you fix that in your authority span of control? And if so, how'd you do it? What I did is I tried to tell people, I did tell people that we're going to ask for input. Everybody's going to have input and I'm going to listen and then I'm going to decide. <laughs> and don't take it personal that if I didn't take your recommendation, it's because just as Scott described, maybe there's something else, another lens that I had available to me or that I need to be aware of that maybe I couldn't share with everybody. 
or on the overall merits, there's another option, another opportunity that we needed to move out on, another COA. That was what I did. I just took it upon myself to do that and try to, and then share broadly why the decision was made the way it was, and then help people understand that you don't need to have 99.9% of the information available to make a decision, that you've got to be able to get to a point where we got to go. So. Outstanding. And Scott, in your experience, transition from your background of all these things that have worked for you into the private sector, same question. How did that go and, and what'd you learn and what'd you have to change? Well, as I worked for the state government, there was still, of course, a structured team for leadership. And so that was quite positive to work under. And when you would notice that you would find a leader that maybe had some disagreements with, et cetera, the most important thing would be to try to talk to them positively, try to influence their thinking in the right manner. And again, it's trying to focus on the proper outcome. And again, looking at honor, ethic, integrity, honesty. And when I worked for the defense contractor, I found that some of my peers didn't collaborate enough. And as we were managers and leaders, some of them weren't strong in collaboration. So you need to collaborate with your peers and also your clients, the people you're working for. And we were under a subcontract from the Department of the Army, and they had an active duty Army presence in the capital city, and they had advisors that would come out and work with us. I would frequently invite them to meetings with us. We would go visit their base and collaborate and communicate. And I think communication is a very important term as well, that you're communicating with your peers, your clients, and those you're under, either under a contract or under leadership guidance. And again, you enhance that with your presence, your presence in meetings, your presence at events. And you'd find that some of the people you'd work with were somewhat weak in that area. You need to try to politely encourage them to improve. And just as Brian noted, you've got to really be strong in listening to the input of your team and then making the best decisions. Did you ever run into any obstacles in the private sector? You talked about disagreement. You would turn a positive and, and discuss, but do you have any war stories, if you will, where things didn't go exactly as planned and you were able to rectify the situation to deliver the mission? Yes, I had times when I'd run into an obstacle with leadership, both in corporate world and in state government. And I try to resolve that issue with the best courses of action. And when you can't reach a conclusion, and I didn't have to do this very often. In fact, it was somewhat of a rarity, but then go to the next level of leadership and inform them of the challenge and let them make a decision. So try to resolve yep. issues with your peers and yep. collaborative organizations. But when you can't, you really have an obligation to inform those above you yes. so they can make a decision. Exactly. And we use the term escalate, which is a positive term, not a negative term. So, okay. The last question before we wrap up and figure out what our takeaways. So that's the warning for you guys to be thinking about. I'm going to ask you what your takeaways you want the listener to take with them today. But before we get to that one, I am very interested in how, I'm not sure how to ask the question, frankly, but it has to do with mission and alignment. So is the best way to ensure alignment to hire for mission? And so the mission of the organization versus the mission of the individual, and when they're the same, they're aligned. And maybe the way to ask the question is, when we have an individual that's in the organization that isn't all the way aligned with mission, then what should the steps be to rectify that? My personal hypothesis is mission has to exist before you can be aligned with anything. 
But then what do we do if that is in fact correct? Then what do we do when we have an individual that's not aligned with the mission? And maybe in the private sector, I think it's more prevalent than not. There's the people that kind of walk the talk to get the paycheck in many organizations. Certainly we want people that are jacked up about what the organizational mission is. And they do the things, like you said, like bring alternatives for decision, et cetera, et cetera. But could you guys comment on that mission versus alignment and how do we ensure we have it? How do we get it? Alignment with the mission. How do we get that? Well, I think that's got to happen on both ends, by the leader, by the organization, and then it's by your practices and how do you reward people for their activities? You know, are you rewarding and acknowledging actions that are in alignment with mission accomplishment. So I think that's one way to do that is to reward those activities that you see are in alignment with the mission and what your organization is trying to accomplish. I think, I don't know that you need to hire somebody that's aligned. I think you need to hire somebody that's got the characteristics that we talked about of a good follower, depending on the role, of course, but you know, integrity, character, and then, then your leadership and your organization will oftentimes build that alignment as they see success, success begets success. So recognizing and rewarding activities and actions that are in alignment with the mission, that just builds upon itself and fosters and strengthens that from my perspective. Scott, your comments? I agree. I agree with everything that Brian shared. I think that two very important things you can do to work with members of your team who are not in alignment with accomplishing the mission is counsel them counsel them as to improvement, polite and effective counseling. And you can also term that as mentoring, but counsel them. And as Brian also noted, reward those that are positively doing positive outcomes. And I had the opportunity when I worked in the corporate environment as a manager, I was given a portion of our corporate budget and it was distributed amongst managers where we could give bonuses and recommend others for even greater bonuses or awards, certificates of accomplishment. And the Saudi Arabian military would even give some of our corporate employees rewards that were gifts and positive outcomes and recognition. So if you can reward and recognize those that are going above and beyond, and you try to politely counsel and mentor those that are out of alignment, that can really help ensure that your team is doing its best to stay in alignment. Excellent. Excellent comments. My thought goes to now is in my questions regarding leadership, do either of the two of you or both have some thoughts on what I forgot to ask about that we should talk about with regard to leadership? It's a big topic. One point I would like to just to kind of underscore is that for the most part, my experience is one, if I had to rely on my rank to get something done, then I failed. I didn't get, I didn't do enough, didn't do enough listening, didn't do enough sharing of information. So I know a lot of folks would think that, hey, as you get up and higher in rank, you just run around yelling at people and tell them to go do stuff. And that's not the case. It's about describing the mission, describing the vision of where we need to be going and then helping helping create the environment that Scott talked about for people to be successful and drive towards that. So rank and position, I can probably count four or five or six people on my hand right now, just enlisted guys and gals who organizationally, you know, were not on the top of the org chart, but certainly they influence the organization and its success just because of their attitude and of their character. What is the functionality of rank then? 
but it's a recognition of experience and it's also a recognition of authority and responsibility. But, and then there are times when you can just say, hey, I'm a major and you're a captain, thou shalt do this. But if you have to get to that point, you, something's not worked, worked out fully. Sure. And we get that. I just wanted to add that because yeah. it's all over the place. Hierarchy is all over the place. So I think when you said responsibility, what I know about people with rank is they take responsibility gladly in terms of delivering the mission and then do all the things you said, all, both you guys said about, you know, optimizing the functionality of the team. Is that on the short list, Brian, taking responsibility? Because you get more. I mean, the way we're structured as human beings, all organizations seem, we have more rank, we have more responsibility, right? Yeah, I think taking responsibility starts at the, at the individual level, like we talked at the follower. Thank you. I am it's responsible narrow, to make sure. Right? Yeah. And it just, as you go up the organization, you're responsible for a broader spectrum, whether you're you know, from Ben and Killy's point, you know, they're responsible for their own kit, for their own weapon, their own firearm, and then they're responsible for, for the squad. And then it builds from there to the platoon, to the company. And so, yeah, I think that responsibility, you know, taking ownership and responsibility for what's been bestowed upon you is what you're, what you got to do. Super. And Scott, same thing. What do you have to add that I, we haven't talked about today? Anything come to mind? Well, I think what Brian just said was perfectly said that we need to acknowledge those elements and points that Brian shared. I think one thing that's helpful that we can do as leaders is when we see anything creep into our world of work that really doesn't belong there and people start to get angered with one another or debate or argue. And right now in our politically divided nation, and we have these topics that really bother people and they find it hard to discuss, we need to encourage them to separate those topics to private time and their own discussions. Yes, they can discuss these tough topics with friends and family, but try to keep them out of the work environment and don't let them influence your work environment and your collaboration and your communication. And I ran into that a few times in both the corporate environment and working for the state government, that people would let political issues, religious issues, and other issues that were in the media interfere. And we need to politely encourage people to take those topics out of the work environment. Yes, you're empowered to discuss them under our constitution. You're empowered to discuss issues and talk about them. And you're empowered to go to whatever church you want to. And you can even run for office. You can do a number of things in this nation that you can't do in other nations. But we just need to try to keep anything that can be a negative influence like that out of our work environment. Okay. Those are excellent things, you guys. I'm learning a ton today. What I like to do here as we roll, wrap it up, can we make a short list? I'm going to suggest five items that if a listener is having issues with leadership or leadership training based on our discussion today that they should really focus on. And I'm going to start the process. Let's work together. So it sounds like become a just excellent listener. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and these also would count as my takeaways for sure. And another one, who wants to put another one out there? <laughs> be, so present. Be, be present. Being present. present. Okay, good. So be excellent listener, being present. Empower your subordinates. Okay, excellent. And then by doing that, you'll create the environment for them to be successful. Okay. Is that the same thing, Brian? Just yeah, it's just a, a complimentary okay. scope of that, I think, I would argue. 
Excellent. And then do we need two more? I think we do. I think I would argue that there needs to be this this concept of trust and integrity. So if you say you're going to do something, you do it, and then your team can trust you. And then when there's trust up and down, mutual trust up and down, the team can be way more effective. I mean, we were talking about earlier on about how do we know that we shouldn't go in that door? Well, because we've trained on that and that guy or gal on the point knows that we shouldn't. So I trust them to make the, the right decision. In that podcast, I call fellowship and trying to reduce it to trust and loyalty. Yeah. Would fellowship be in there, Brian? Yes, I think that's a when, when you've got an organization it's okay. it's that's successful like this, I think that then that builds that fellowship. You okay. see the same thing on a team, you know, once you've had so shared experiences, yeah, yeah, then you build fellowship. Yeah. And fellowship's kind of a lagging measure. It's lagging. It's a result of doing things right. Okay. All right. Another. I would offer the triple C, collaborate, communicate, and offer courses of action. I like that. A course of action. Brian, you want to add another? Just recognize good behavior. Yes. Then acknowledgements. Yep. Acknowledge good behavior. Yeah. Excellent. So that's great, you guys. I really appreciate you being here. I'm going to start with my takeaways and I'll keep it really short. Things I want to work on. I think the idea of being present is one that drifts a little bit. I think you convinced me I got to get my butt back on it. And I've had periods in my career where I've done that better than others. I think I need to improve on that one in the short term. So that's a big, and in the way that you guys described, I really like that. Thank you. I'm going to work on that one. The other one is I don't know if you ever stop practicing being a good listener, and I really want to get there. And then for me, the third takeaway that I'm going to try to work on is kind of a retraining of the courses of action that Scott had brought up and reestablish and encourage people to do that as a way to be completely empowered right? And in alignment with the organization. I think I need to work on that one personally. So you two guys, what takeaways do you have maybe for yourselves, but also for the listener that they should focus on? And we've kind of made a couple lists already. Anything to add? I guess kind of spawned on your comments, kind of, you know, things you can work on. I would argue that this is an ongoing thing. Leadership is an ongoing practice and we're never there. We have to continue to come back and resharpen our tool, resharpen our focus, whether it's on listening, about recognizing, whether it's around the collaboration. We got to be intentional and we got to keep working at it. I know I'm not there and that I don't know that I'll ever get here, but that's part of the process. That's part of what gets me excited about trying to be better. Yeah, life happens. I agree with all of that. Go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. Sorry. I agree with all of that. I think another thing I would simply add in is we, as we work with the people who are leading, we need to do three things. We need to mentor them, try to improve things that we can, give them advice that's polite and courteous. So mentoring is important. Counsel them. Counseling and mentoring are similar. Sometimes counsel is formal, but it's private. And again, reward them when we have the opportunity to reward them. And Brian and I have been talking about honor, ethic, integrity, and trust and loyalty. Those three words really matter. That we need to encourage honor, ethic, integrity, trust, and loyalty in our employees. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed this. I hope you guys did. Thanks for being with us today. You have anything you want to add? A goodbye. I want to thank you for your service again. I really am in awe with you guys, and I so appreciate that. And of course, I appreciate your friendship too, and your willingness to come on the Fit Professional One podcast and share your super valuable insights with the listeners. So glad to have you. Thanks for being here. 
Well, thanks for your invitation. It's great to see you two gentlemen again. That was awesome and a great, great reminder on reflecting on on the experiences and the men and women I got to serve with. So it was really a great, a great, great experience. Thank you, Paul. Excellent. Thanks, Scott. So, well, again, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for your friendship. Thank and you very thanks much. For